And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Cood Street Motel 6, somewhere in Middle America, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the last episode for 2012 of the Cood Street Podcast! And here we are! Uh, um, happy New Year to you, to our listeners. Did you have a nice Christmas? I had an okay Christmas. I've been on well, and... Also, the weather here has been appalling. It's sort of, you know, 108 degrees outside, and it has been, you know, it will be tomorrow and the next day, and it was yesterday mm. and the day before. So it was, you know, 104 on Christmas Day. Yeah, well, that's that's something I, I, I can't get my mind around, even though we didn't have snow on Christmas. We had a little bit of snow yesterday, and it's charming, and <clears throat> there was a good deal of time. Spent with family, which probably, now that I think about it, all those little kids, probably is why I have the first cold, my first cold of 2012. Wow. Here here at the very death knell of the year, as it sits there, ready to go. I mean, you, know, you said Happy New Year, but let's face it, you're just a little bit early, Gary. No, I figured out, because I, I, I did, I, I checked out the timing on it, and I figured out that this cold I've got right now, mm-hmm. that is the Mayan apocalypse. That's, <laughs> that's what it's reduced to. It's not even a squib; it's just a sniffle. It's not, it's not, no, it's a, it's it's a minor bronchial infection. If <laughs> if they had been predicting the end of calendar Mayan minor bronchial infection, they would have all been right. <laughs> well, only in certain parts of Middle America, Gary. Well, that's true. But it's we're awesome. in the parts of Middle America. So basically, Middle Australia. So basically, what you're saying is, you know, there's an apocalypse, but it may be localized. Yes, it could be a minor infection. It could be a paper cut. Um, Whatever. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, and what's been happening in your science fictional sort of week or two since since we spoke with with, with Gene Wolf? Um. Well, between family holidays and that sort of thing, obviously I've been doing the same sort of thing you've been doing. I've been working on my well, I turned in my review column and now working on an essay about the end of the year <coughs> and um, looking like several other. Um, Locusites have been doing at the at the novel the all time novel results yes. poll. Yeah. Yeah. First one we've done in what twenty years or something. Uh, I don't know. Can I be really honest here, Gary? Forget just to sort of back as background, so everybody who's listening's up. Uh, over the the last thirty odd years, on several occasions, Locus Magazine has run a, a poll of its readers. Uh, to ascertain their selection for the best novels, the most famous writers, the best short stories of all time. And this year, Locus Online uh, ran uh, a poll in four categories for the best novel and best short fiction of the 20th and 21st centuries. And those results were published on the 21st of December. They received 625 votes, Gary, which I, I, I've got to be honest, I've got no idea how that stacks up compared to previous years. It doesn't sound like either. a lot, but, you know, it's not, not nothing. But I have to say for the first time in my, yeah, the first time ever in my career, in science fiction, I couldn't engage with the whole concept. I felt completely disinterested in it. Um, it's interesting, I suppose. Well, I was, I'm going to make the statement and then immediately disagree with it. It's interesting in what it tells you about readers' perceptions of what science fiction is. <clears throat> what I'm going to disagree with is it tells you a bit about what 625 readers perceptions are and we don't quite know who they are no i mean we know that those 625 uh voters um were a a mixture of people who read locus magazine and people who came to the locus online website from various parts of the web and that's Mm. all we know although given that i don't think that the, the list that emerged at least for 20th century sf novel there were there were four lists, we should make this clear. There was one for 20th century science yep. fiction, yep. best science fiction novel of the 20th century, best fantasy novel of the 20th century, and then best science fiction and fantasy novels of the 21st century so far, which is basically best novels of yes. the past decade, um, which, which is a completely different way of thinking about it. And I'm, my guess is that if a much larger vote had been taken, <coughs> most of the books on the 20th century list would be the same. Uh, I don't know because I mean let's face it for a start no, no nothing if there's 620 votes right nothing attracted more than 50 percent of, of the of the voters well, that's uh, the, the highest vote for anything was the for, for the Lord of the Rings by Tolkien which was the 20th century fantasy novel which got 340 votes mm-hmm. um, 
In the 21st century categories, the number one place getter in each category got one-sixth of the available votes. And in 20th century SF novel, the first place getter got one-third of the available votes. So these are not necessarily anywhere near as consensus-driven as you would think, right? Uh, they are small votes from a selective readership. So it's at best indicative. The 20th century ballots, which is where I might start, are unsurprising, to put it mildly. I think Locus yeah. readers have consistently placed Dune as the best science fiction novel of all time. Uh-huh. I remain surprised at that, I think. I would have hoped that that position might have moved on in the intervening... I think the first poll was in the early 70s, so 40 years nearly. Uh, not that Dune isn't a, a science fiction classic, but I'm not sure it's the greatest science fiction novel of all time. Um, I think that yeah I, uh, well I, I agree I think that I'm not surprised that Dune is there I'm not surprised that Scott Card is there that Asimov and so forth I think what people tend to do when they get when they get asked a question like this is is to is to come up with the easiest answer and what is the best science fiction novel I'm just reading the minds of these voters now without any prior knowledge hmm. at all is actually the most science fictional novel they can think of the one that most reminds them of the science fiction they've read yeah. most. <coughs> exemplifies their idea of science fiction. And Dune has all the elements uh, that a lot of different readerships want. It has epic battles. It has uh, a completely uh, elaborately invented world. So it's got world building. It's got epics. It's got secret heroes. It's got uh, psionic powers. It has worms. I mean, what else can you ask for in a novel? Big worms. True, but then this is this is the best novel for a hundred-year period. Um, well, one of the, okay, here's one of the, this, this is, <coughs> excuse me for this, but this is my end apocalypse that's interrupting occasionally. I understand. If you look at the list, uh, which I am looking at right now, there is, I think, nothing on the list earlier than 1953. True. No. Yes, there is. 1984 came in on 1949. 19, right. <coughs> but even, no, and Brave New World came out in 1932. So there. Ha ha. Okay. Um, but your real point, I think you're about to make, if I can preempt, would be to say that they're all the novels that came out post the death of the pulp period. Well, pretty much, or novels that came to us from the mainstream. Yep. One of the things that's interesting about science fiction readers and fans who are generally resistant to mainstream, I mean, you, you, you've, you've seen the outcry, some of us have been part of the outcry about Margaret Atwood. You've mm-hmm. seen people criticize Doris Lessing. You've seen people yep. criticize Philip Roth. But... Within the science fiction community, some writers get a pass. Orwell yeah. gets a pass, and uh, certainly Aldous Huxley gets a pass. Okay. So those, <coughs> those are mainstream novels you would expect to see on this list. Yeah. Also, they're novels everybody has read. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I guess the, the thing that's obviously – the other obvious thing about this list, particularly I mean, we're talking about the science fiction list right now, the 20th century science fiction list. This is the great white man of history list, is it not? I mean – there are maybe two or three women on the top 50. Um, everything else is by the numbers. I mean, there's nothing... I saw, a lot, I saw a lot of negative response to this list, Gary. Lots online, on Twitter. Oh, yeah. And I'm not going to... I don't really disagree with anybody or even necessarily agree strongly. I look and I think, what this is, is this is the least considered list. It's the most obvious. It's the, you know... Uh, default <laughs> setting list. This is what you would mm-hmm. write out in your sleep. Um, pretty much, and I think that's probably what people tended to do. I don't think there's anything yeah. uh, especially challenging on it. It's uh, you're right. There. Let me see. There's Le Guin in the top fifteen. That's it. Um, at at Woodward, we'll number thirty-eight. Right. Uh, if you look at, let me see. Well, you've got a few British writers. Yep. You got um, Lemon Strugatsky, who are sort of Eastern European. Yeah. That's your um, lot, mate. But um, I'm not sure. I, I think one of the things when people complain about the list online, and I've seen some of that too, is that we should probably put this disclaimer out right now that this is not Locus's no, not recommendations to the all-time greatest novels. This is not like we all sat down <laughs> in a back room and we are. I mean, you know the way they do the um, spectrum annuals where they get judges and they go out in the back room and they argue over stuff and they assess and all that kind of thing and make, make their decisions and put together a balanced list that they re- – a group of artwork for the year. This is a popular vote. 
I'm not sure. It's a semi-popular vote. It's a popular vote of people who came became aware of it, um, you know, through the various outlets, yes. through Locus Online, through John Scalzi's uh, you know, website, the people that repeated the um, the contest. So it's it's not a general popular vote. There obviously, when you look at some of the uh, contests, <coughs> I forgot who it was that that did a general uh, best novel of the 20th century poll among thousands and thousands of mm-hmm. people. And, was dominated by L. Ron Hubbard and Ayn Rand. Yeah, exactly. Because I don't see a, I don't see any of that happening here. No, I don't but, see a lot of special pleading, a lot of organized voting. What I see is hmm? certainly not the twentieth century list. No, I mean, no. Uh, and also a lot of the comparisons are sort of a bit meaningless to me. Uh, and also there's a few errors. Like I just noticed that the Foundation trilogy comes in at number three, and Foundation comes in at number forty-two, which is a curious curiosity. Ah, I don't have the full list going down to forty-two, but. Um, yeah, but, I guess some people. But I'm not going to sit here and make a case for and against whether the Dispossessed is is a is not as good a novel as Ringworld, or Childhood's End, which appear above it. Um, this isn't my list. I didn't actually nominate or vote in this 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 mm. poll. But yeah, I thought it was. I I have no great objection to to say the top ten, but nor would they necessarily be my top ten. Um. I'm I'm probably slightly more on board with the fantasy list a little bit, though again, it's it, it's greatly swayed by uh, current practice. The fact that Game of Thrones comes in at number two is a great yeah. testament to the current sort of circumstance. Um, but I mean, Lord of the Rings is number. I think anybody would have picked Lord of the ones Lord of the Rings yeah. is the obvious one. Uh, the Hobbit, Wizard of the Sea, Nine Princes in Amber. These are all fine. When you get down to the Harry Potter books and stuff, I don't know. Um, and I've seen, seen one or two people saying, you know, what, you mean you said that Storm of Swords was better than whatever else? I'm going, yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, it's right. like, it's a popular vote. It happens. I I wouldn't, again, have written this list. But I, I'm also happy to see some of the books discussed if they get discussed. And that's the other, I guess that's the other side of it, <laughs> this whole list thing, Gary. Whilst well, I don't no, know. I what, hmm? what interests me about both lists, about we're still looking at the 20th century, is hmm. that there are some novels, for example, uh, as we both know, The Star is My Destination has not been widely available for a long time. It shows yeah. up on the list. Um, Nine Princes in Amber is not a currently hot uh, novel. So the, the, the ones that interest me are the ones that look like somebody has thought at least a little bit of uh, some distance into the past. And, the, and they have. I think you know, sort of they've done a reasonably good job. Um, that said, you know... It, it is very much influenced by current trends, as these things always are, and there's not much else you can yeah. expect of it. Um, I would be happy. I mean, like, if I look at, say, the 20th century fantasy list, if you're listening to this and you've not read these books and you go out and you read John Crowley's Little Big or you read Guy Kay's Tagana or you read Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, which is probably really science fiction, but let's not quibble, or yeah, you yeah. go read Fritz Leiber, or Powers as the Anubis Gates. I'm looking for a woman on this, Gary. Or Robert Holdstock's wonderful Mythigo Wood. Or Barry Hewart's Bridge of Birds. Or Anne McCaffrey's probably science fictional Dragonflight. They're all books. That they're, well, all worth, yeah. they're, um, they're all worth seeking out. Oh, I, I, I think if somebody used this as a guide to, uh, to useful things that fantasy and science fiction readers like... <laughs> That's probably very helpful. You're right. Is Diana? I'm only looking at the top fifteen. And each is Diana Wynne Jones on the list anywhere? I don't believe she is. No. Hmm. But that means on both lists. Well, actually, I'll t- here's a curiosity, uh, and it tells you a lot about things. And it's not that surprising. But if you look in fantasy, at the post 2000, the post 1995 titles, mm-hmm. YA writers show up. If you look at the older work, they don't. <coughs> well, that's true, with the exception of The Hobbit, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, but I think that fantasy, uh, well, and again, this is largely a going going to be a contest among novels that a lot of people have read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, I think you're right. I think it was starting um, 1980s and 1980s that most people are going to encounter fantasy as as young adults. They're going to yeah. encounter them when they're fairly young, and so that those yeah. tend to stick in mind. But also, it's interesting to look. I mean, if you look at 20th century SF, nothing outside the top 10 attracted 100 votes. <coughs> if you look at the fantasy list, 
Nothing outside the top 10 attracted 50 votes. And there are a bunch there that are on there with 15 or 16 votes. You know, uh, Barry Huart's Bridge of Bridge, which I think is a great book, got 16 votes. 16 votes, Gary. Well, my point is this. That's a testament to the number of people. If if there's any kind of proportional representation here, Bridge of Bridge is not a widely known novel anymore. No, it's not. The fact that that 16 people remembered it and were impressed enough by it to put it on the list or to vote for it is fairly impressive. (coughs) If I were somebody learning to read science fiction and fantasy, (coughs) excuse me again, or, or vaguely acquainted with it, I would be looking on this list for books I've never heard of. Yep. The science fiction top 15 titles of the 20th century, they're all familiar. Uh, same thing is pretty much true with the top 15 uh, or 16 um, fantasy novels. But if, if I were somebody like that and I saw Bridge of Birds, I'd wonder, what is that? Why am I, why am I looking at that title in the, in, in the context of all these familiar titles? True. I mean, that, that's assuming that you're just looking at it very casually because you've never looked up an award-winning list or anything, but yes. Uh, where, see, I would argue there's, there's nothing on the science fiction list that wouldn't be known to people. Probably the only thing people may not have read might be the, the Strugatsky book or something, but it's in print and quite right. readily available. And right. I think everything on that list is probably in print and fairly <laughs> readily available right now. Uh, and the same for the, fa- the fantasy list, a little bit less so, I think. I think there's one or two things that are almost touching on the possibility of being closer to left field, but only slightly so. So, I mean, they're... It's okay. Well, the other thing that's interesting, uh, stick, sticking with the 20th century lists, is that there are some cult books that are here because they're cult books in a sense that they have extremely loyal followings. I would not... I mean, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy comes in just behind the left hand of darkness. There's nothing remotely comparable between those two books. Well, that's another point. That's a different point, and that's the point of why you know, I didn't submit to this at all, uh, amongst other things, and that is... The comparisons are meaningless. How do you compare these books t- to one another? Uh, and it's, I mean, it's, it's an almost, a, almost a sophomoric point, and we've discussed it before. Oh, yeah. But you're right. I mean, I wouldn't compare The Stars by Destination and Left Hand of Darkness or Canticle of <laughs> Leibowitz, but they're all substantial, no. serious science fiction novels. Uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide is a very good comedy, and I can see why it's very popular, and I'm not surprised it's on a list, but it, you wouldn't seek to compare and contrast it with those books, and I don't think it's in, that's an intention either. I mean, this is perhaps a more va- valuable thing to hang on to when you look at these lists, and that is their talking points are not serious lists. Well, they're, they're beloved books. Maybe maybe people should be looking at the most beloved or the most... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I mean, uh, on the fantasy list, there's... Um, a Princess Bride, for example. A Princess Bride is not remotely connected to anything else in fantasy, really. It's it's a parody of a children's book. <coughs> and it has an extremely loyal following, and it's delightful to read. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it's a beloved tale is, is what puts it on the list. Um, not because it's comparable to... Well, again, if you put these things... Um, it's, it's not comparable to a storm of swords beneath it or Watership Down above it. Um, But Watership Down is another cult book. It has a very loyal following. There are books, both in science fiction and fantasy, that have gained followings (coughs) completely outside the genre readership. Um, Some of them are not here. For example, on the best fantasy of the 20th century, what I do not see, and I think we would have seen 20 years ago, uh, would have been the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. Yes. I'm surprised that, that not a single one of those appeared. No, it's not there anywhere. But they have a loyal... Yes, it does. Ball. Stop. Yes, it does. I just looked. <coughs> Number 25, it? Lord Foulsbane. Oh, okay. So it's <laughs> Okay, so we'd just like to put a caveat on all of our comments on this list, and that is that we haven't necessarily read it carefully. Well, yes, right. Well, I'm, I'm, again, you're looking at... I'm only looking at the top 15 that were on the Locus website. Okay. Well, the, no, the, whole, the, the, whole, the whole list is on the Locus website. Oh, I'm sorry. I looked at the wrong place. Um, shall we move on to the 21st? I guess the thing to be said about the 20th century <coughs> is that it's pretty much, if you know much about science fiction, it's pretty much what you would expect. I guess. Well, okay, let, let, let's talk about the 21st century stuff for a second. And I think to contextualize again a little, I believe the intention was to 
I guess what, take the temperature of feeling for the first time for works which are quite new and what may be uh, beginning to emerge in the mind of readers out there as being works of interest and or importance for the 21st century. Um, there were seed lists provided where people could go and see works yeah. that, that had been uh, published during the, the period. And I think that this, the um, cutoff point was 2010. So it's the first 10 years of right. of the century. Um, so we're only looking at a decade compared to a century for the previous Yeah, so, so, so a couple of recent very good books obviously are are not, not included. And that's fair enough. Uh and I guess the first thing, again, since I was talking about voting is, again, these these categories, these categories, in fact, have fewer votes than the all-time by some consideration. <coughs> right. And for the top 20 in each category, you're ranging between 100-odd votes to top the poll down to about 20 votes to come in at 20th place. So it's a small, oh, yeah. small readership. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't, again, greatly taken with the lists. There were some books there that were popular but weren't remarkable. And there were a few books I thought were very good. I mean, for me, I look down the list and I think uh, Pattern Recognition by Bill Gibson comes in at number eight, I think is one of his best books by a long margin. Uh-huh. Uh, I think River of Gods by Ian MacDonald at 12 stands out. I think Mike Harrison's Light at number 14 stands out. And I think Michael Chabon's uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union at number 15 stands out. And then there's some other books. Right. <coughs> there are some books that, again, this raises the question of whether an author has a particular following. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the number two book, even though it had 63 votes, was Neil Stevenson's Anathem. Yeah. Uh, that could be all 63 people who finished the book. <laughs> but Neil Stevenson is an enormously popular writer. He is. Uh, this is probably... <coughs> actually his most challenging book and I would include the uh, Baroque trilogy in that Yes, um, which makes you wonder if you're voting for a book partly because of its prestige or its density or its difficulty it's certainly a, it's certainly a very unique book, I don't think it's his best book um, I would have thought Cryptonomicon was his best book no, I, would, I would probably tend to agree with that so far yeah. uh, and so I mean, I mean looking down the list you know, st- I guess if, if we look at <coughs> I thought, I mean, The Wind-Up Girl is a book that I think, I mean, it came out in 2009. It was the, it's the equal most awarded book in the history of the field. I'm not surprised that there, but I just have this feeling it's going to fade over time. Um, I'm it's deli- really hard to say. I mean, yeah. it's really hard to say because he's created the kind of post, a post-scarcity world, which is the book itself may fade, but it may have altered the... Uh, way people portray post-petroleum futures. I mean, he's moved into YA with his same future mm-hmm. now. <coughs> and it's, um, it may be one of these books which turns out to be more influential than read in another 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly because it is very, very grim. Uh, but then and immediately after that, you have a very traditional science fiction novel. I should say a very traditional science fiction slash mainstream novel, which surprises me a little bit, which is Robert Charles Wilson's Spin. Mm-hmm. <coughs> which is the best of the three novels in that uh, series, and which is also, this is one which I talked to my uh, students at one point, they loved it because uh, apart from all the uh, special effects which Wilson does, the, the, the large-scale imaginative leaps he asked you to make, you know, it's a very mainstream family saga yeah. uh, about uh, characters who are extremely well-drawn, believable, and the students who didn't like the science fiction part still liked the novel. So in a sense, that's a very traditional choice. It's a choice that looks more like what science fiction writers in the 70s were trying to do, uh, what the Benfords were trying to do at that time. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> <coughs> and yet it's a very strong novel. Uh, it is. I was pleased what? to see Peter Watts' book there. Peter Watts, I'm glad to see it there, but it surprises me a little bit. I'm surprised uh, to see it in the top five, um, but a strong book. Um I'll say it again. Three women on the list. Uh huh. That's disappointing. <coughs> um. And one of whom is Suzanne Collins. Yes. Um, uh, which rates above Mike Harrison's Light by about six positions, but you know. Well. 
so, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think it, there's a few interesting books there. I don't think they are cl- close to the best 21st century SF novels. Some curious omissions. If you're going to put together a really rigorous list, then some of them would make it, some of them wouldn't. I don't even know if River of Gods would be my choice for Ian MacDonald. I mean, I like the book, but The Dervish House is a particularly strong I'll novel. I like The Dervish House better. I was going to say that that's my choice as well. Um, I'm not sure I'd put Cormac McCarthy's The Road there. Uh, because I don't think it's a good science fiction novel. It has nothing to do with my thought that it's yep. a very bleak, apocalyptic Samuel Beckett, nothing yep. matters anymore novel, but it's not science fiction. It's not important. <coughs> and I really am not taken by um, uh, Ilium by Dan Simmons. Um, that surprised me a bit. Um, it um, surprised me a little bit because... Um, well, it didn't surprise me because Hyperion showed up way back on the 20th century list. I mean, he's, he's again, a very popular yeah. writer. But the Ilium uh, diptych didn't – it was bizarre fun when reading it, but I don't think I'd want to look at it again. Yes, I mean, I'm looking at this list as well. I'm disappointed to see so few of the modern British writers appear on either the 21st, 20th century science fiction or 21st century science fiction <laughs> lists. The absence mm-hmm. of your Paul McCauley's and Stephen Baxter's and Alistair Reynolds and Gwyneth Jones, who's one of our great writers, um, just surprises me. I, I would have thought that they would have made some kind of showing somewhere. I'm surprised by the omission of Bruce Sterling from the list completely. Is uh, Stan Robinson on the list further down from what I have? Uh, I'm just—I think Red Mars shows in somewhere, or maybe not. Maybe Stan's complete. No, yeah, Red Mars comes in at 35 on the on the all-time list. So you know, there are people I'd expect. This this is there's some good books there, but it's an odd list. The fantasy list is, yeah, it's a fantasy list. There's some good books in amongst it all. No, no. Let me rephrase that. I don't think there are any bad books. But if I was putting together a list of the top 20 fantasy novels of the last 12, 10 years, or 2000 to 2010, or whatever it was, a bunch of these would not appear on my list. Um, and I also wouldn't have had The City in the City appearing at number eight uh, on the science fa- the fantasy list, number nine on the science fiction list. Yeah, that's kind of bizarre. I might have actually sort of made a choice. I mean, <laughs> American Gods is a good book. Strange and Norrell is a terrific book. I've not read Patrick Rothfuss's novel, so I can't comment. I love The Scar. It's my favorite China Mieville book. Really? Mm. I've never read the published version. Uh, I read a, a, a manuscript version, which was 50,000 uh-huh. words longer. And I retain a irrational love for that book. But I think it's a bit of a sprawling mess in some ways, too. So, you know, uh, I think the I like The Air Affair very much. I didn't read Paladin of Souls. I think Night Watch is a much better Terry Pratchett book than The Color of Magic, which shows up on the 20th century list. The Wizard Knight is a major work. Yeah. Um, as you, you know, so I mean, if you said to me which of those books are major works, Susanna Clarke's book and Gene Wolfe's books are major works, and I'd have to think carefully about some of the others. I think the Graveyard book is probably a long-term book that we'll be reading for <laughs> ages, and I'm not as sure about some of the others. But that's just me off the top of my head. Well, I tend, to, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think. Gaiman, Neil Gaiman has written better books since American Gods, and I think actually the Graveyard book is one of them because they're more controlled. Um, I'm not sure that uh, I would have. I would. I, I I enjoyed the Air Affair. I uh, gave it a good review. Yeah. But it's really fluff. I mean, it's really cotton candy. Yeah, and they get even more so as this as the series runs on. As the series goes on, it becomes less substantial. It was, it was a neat. I think what made that one attractive was that the conceit was absolutely charming. It was a Brilliant metafictional thing, uh, but once you got it, once you got it, then I, I would I would say that the series turned into cotton candy halfway through the air affair, yeah. and continued that way with the others. <coughs> Even though it's a it, it, it's a neat high concept kind of thing. <coughs> I mean, it it would be interesting to get a panel of, say, ten people, ten or twelve people together, and hammer out an actual list. Covering these well, periods. The problem, the problem with these lists is that, as I say, I think what we've got here is largely a most beloved list. People love. Yeah. I mean, the 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 twentieth twenty first century fantasy novel is populated. Uh, you know, Neil Gaiman and and Terry Pratchett are all over it. And J.K. Rowling is all over yeah, it. Yeah, I mean Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman, who is a good writer, don't get me wrong, he's a good writer. I've read his new book, 
and I liked it very much, and I've liked these books. But he's got three books on the list. He's got yeah, he's got three books on the list, and that has to do with the fact that he's not only a very good writer, as is Terry Pratchett, but they're very beloved writers. Oh yes, they're writers that have you know enormously uh, passionate followings, as 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 they deserve. Um, but you're not going to find as any oddball one-off fantasy novels here by anybody you've never heard of because they don't get that kind of following. Yeah. So to get back to your point, let's put together a group of people, which we could probably do on this podcast. <coughs> what would we be, be agreeing on? The most beloved novels, we've pretty much got that here. The best novels, I don't know what you're comparing to what. <laughs> the most important novels, the ones that are likely to be read 20 or 30 years from now. I think you'd have that, to toss a coin and just go for it like you say the, the most important or some nonsense like that or the or the most interest i don't know something uh, and and you'd need to choose your your panel carefully you would need it to be gender balanced you'd need people from around the world you'd need a, a depth of knowledge so you could come in and bring stuff to the table and actually argue through a couple hundred books or so and go you know like this versus this versus this what are the merits and the, and put together an informed thing it would be a huge effort and i'm not sure anyone will ever do such a thing it would be interesting though just because <coughs> it would be a corrective for this i mean this is a very well-intentioned list i think and i think the people who've run it have done it um scrupulously and fairly and all of the people who are disappointed with the list that i've seen are not actually disappointed with the list running or with locus or anything else they're disappointed with this being a reflection of actual popular taste. Well, I don't know how you can take 200, 600 votes and say that's really representative of Well, that's it as well. What? Well, this is part, that's true, and getting people to vote in these things is difficult. But it, it true. I guess what I'd say to that, though, is, you know, it's the poll that's around, so you talk about the one that's there. So we're talking about the Locust poll because, hey, it's out. And they got 600 mm. votes, but we're not going to talk about that. This is the, Locust says this is the all-time, you know, the, the all-time greatest fantasy novel <laughs> is X. Well, you know. Yes and no. I mean, it's... Uh, if, if you were going to do – this is what happens when you do any kind of People's Choice Awards. These are familiar science fiction novels. So you wanted to do a list of the most recognized science fiction novels. Somebody, I don't know, the Gallup poll or something like that used to do a some kind of survey of the most recognized mm. faces in the world. And I think – I don't know. Mickey Mouse usually comes out number one. Yeah. And for several years it was Hitler. Um, these, this is a good list of the most recognized science fiction and fantasy novels, the ones that the most largest number of people have probably heard of. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure that all the people who voted for them have read all of them, as I said. Oh, I'm sure um, that. But, okay, I'm sure that if you checked, all of the people on the all of the people who voted did not read all of the books that were on the list. No, that, because you put in you, you put in your own top ten, I think it was, and then this is a compilation of people's top top ten. And one of the things I would say in defense of the list, in defense of the approach and everything else, is if you're putting in 10 books, you're going to probably come up with your 10 most best-known books for you. Yeah. And if you put in 20 books, you're going to come up with 20 best-known and so forth. So what we're finally saying is pretty much what some of the people commenting online have said, which is that does a list like this have any meaning other than to reass reassert <coughs> the widespread belief that <coughs> for example, Dune is a, is a is a classic science fiction novel. Very little. Uh, very little. It disappoints it disappoints me to think that science fiction hasn't moved beyond Dune because there is some crude writing in Dune and there's some structural flaws in it which only became more evident as the sequels proliferated. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what it's done, Gary. It just gives you a, a slight feeling for a change a slight change in the temper of the time for a particular. Um, demographic and I say that because I, I ha would have to go back and look and I'm very lazy so I'm not going to but I doubt that Robert Heinlein failed to make the top 10 novels at any point in the, any of the other polls I suspect you're right so that's a temperature of things kind of thing but you know what we've spent half the podcast talking about this and neither of us are convinced it's actually an interesting <laughs> list are we no it's not uh, we've spent half of the podcast convincing ourselves that this is not really very interesting haven't we this wasn't really a brainwave of ours was it? <laughs> no i don't know um, you see and you see i i, I think of any of us was around they go why did you just talk about when they feel like? it's because we're at the end of the year and gary's got a bronchial infection i've been on <laughs> well and we're at the 
the end of the year time. I've just finished compile helping well doing the doing the overseeing of the co- compilation of the local short fiction recommended reading list, uh-huh. which is gone. It's out of my life now. I don't have to look at it anymore, which is great. And I am currently at least planning on unless I'm persuaded otherwise by my editor as pretty quickly playing hooky. I'm not even going to put in a recommended reading essay, Gary. Well, For the I'm first time to. in since nineteen ninety nine. The thing that bothers me about these essays, and I've complained to you about this and I, every time I've turned one in, which I've been doing for probably 20 years now, is that um, I, do, I would recommend different books to everybody I'm talking to. I mean, I have something, some knowledge of their taste, their interests, and so forth. So what I tried to do, one of the things which I think was a trend this year, and I noticed it in my own reactions to books, um, was we've talked for a long time about the distinction between YA and, and science fiction or fantasy being artificial. But finally this year it occurred to me, and, I, and I, this comes from talking to people, not just my own reactions, mm-hmm. that there are some, there are still some YA books which look like the author diverting into YA. Ian McDonald's uh, YA looks different from Ian McDonald's adult fiction. Yes. He's, he's, he's writing a simpler plot, a more straightforward chase adventure, younger characters, uh, Nala Hopkinson's The Chaos uh, diverges from her usual pattern of characters and so forth. But when you looked at Railsea or you looked at um, The Drowned Cities, those were just the new Mieville and the new Batrachalupi novels. Yep. I don't think very many readers now are thinking, okay, uh, here's the new Mieville YA. People weren't thinking of it in terms of necessarily unlundone. They were thinking of it in terms of this is the new Mieville novel. That's, that's an interesting point because uh, I exactly saw it as the new Mieville YA, and I exactly thought about it as on London. I didn't get, get past chapter two, but that's you know. Well, I, see, uh, I don't know if you read Kraken because I thought it. I love Kraken. Well, Kraken is it's, it's a Kraken read, like a YA novel. It's a it's a fast moving. What? What did you say? This is a Kraken read. Sorry. Oh. Sorry, oh, no. sorry, sorry. No, no. Anyway, move along. We'll pretend I didn't do that. Okay, okay, we'll pretend that didn't happen. But, but Kraken had a lot of the appeal of a YA book. Yes. Kraken was not like a a a, a boss log novel. No. Um, and it was not even like City in the City. <coughs> and Rail C was. China's been talking about um, writing a novel in every genre. Rail C is is the is, is, is the nautical adventure novel. Yeah, uh, which is a genre he Except hasn't really tried. Weird, weird fascination he has with the, with rail with railway. Um, that's his problem. Uh, <laughs> the novel was a nautical adventure with railways instead of <coughs> seas and, and and moldy warps instead of whales. Um, I think in in Bacigalupi's case, I think people who love love the wind up girl are coming to realize that if you're going to read more Bacigalupi, you're going to be reading the YAs. Well, yes, yes. I think there's well, there's a third YA due, and uh, and then I don't know if when he's getting around to doing a, a next adult novel. But hey, look, the the truth is, I think the distinction with his stuff is that it, it it's a very slight distinction. I think I might be wrong, but okay. Let, let let's play the game for a second. I've said I'm not going to write a recommended reading li- uh, essay. I probably won't, though I may be persuaded to. Good year, bad year, Gary. Uh, for well, good year for fantasy novels. Terrific year for story collections. Best I've seen in a long time. And I think an okay year for science fiction novels. Didn't we say that last year? I thought this was a much stronger year for science fiction novels than last year. You may be thinking of the strongest novels of the year. Uh, well, which one other ones would I think of, Gary? <coughs> well, my two strongest novels of the year in science fiction were 2012 by Kim Stanley Robinson or and 2312. Empty Space by uh, M. John Harrison. I would pretty much agree with that, yes. Um, I mean, there are other books I enjoyed. I, I found Hydrogen Sonata by Ian Banks problematic. I, I thought it was a little bit overlong. And <laughs> I confess um, I didn't read it. I actually read the opening chapters for Caliban's War by James Corey and have to go back and reread it. But um, I loved Empty Space, which I think is a complex, very challenging novel. Um, I love 2312. I uh, really enjoyed Blue Rainbow Earth. I just read Red Shirts by by John Scalzi, which I had had a real struggle with in some ways. Really? This, the, well, I'll tell you why I had a struggle with it. it. It's been 
very well reviewed and it's got onto all sorts of interesting lists which is great and halfway through the book i was thinking i don't really understand why uh because it's entertainingly enough written and it's got a simple conceit but i will say this he does interesting things with it in the back half of the book he really does conceptually he plays around quite <coughs> quite well and it belongs on recommended reading lists and it probably is going to get onto the hugo list it probably will, and to some extent, it's a book that looks back to the past, also. Yeah, it's a book but, which is deliberately riffing on Star Star Trek memorabilia sorts of things. I mean, if you said to me, looking at the science fiction list, what books will be read in ten years, I would make a particular guess. The ones that are the great books of the year, I think you've picked the ones. I think the great books of the year are the, are the M. John Harrison and the Kim Stanley Robinson. The very good books of the year are probably uh, the. Uh, Paul McCauley would be the, would be the other one that really comes to mind in, in the science mouth fiction. Of the whale. Yeah, in the mouth of the whale, which I think is a, a great book. Um, I didn't read a lot of the other sort of runner-uppy titles that were kicking around. Uh, well, Blue Remembered Earth, Al Reynolds is a very good novel. A very good um, novel as well. Yes, because I mean Al's terrific. And he's doing something new there, and that's always something that um, I find encouraging. I thought the new Lois Bujold was a, a real return for her. It was okay. a very strong, very entertaining book that I read in the first half of the year and liked a great deal. <coughs> the fantasy list actually, I think is, it, I was going to say it's weaker, but I don't, I take it back a little because we've got, we've got, we've got about 14 novels that, that were being kicked around with on the locust list. Last time I looked, it features two or three of my favorite books of the year by some distance. Um, mm. there, there's Graham Joyce's some kind of fairy tale, which we've discussed on the podcast here. And we discussed with Graham which I liked a great deal. There was Margot Lanigan's The Brides of Roll Rock Island slash Sea Hearts, which I also liked a very great deal. <coughs> and then there's Caitlin Kiernan's The Drowning Girl, which would be in my top two or three books of the year and would sit in my top, somewhere in my top five or ten books of the decade. Um, I think that was, that, that was probably, of the books that appeared this year, in terms of the author's career, that was the most important that's the most important book that Caitlin Kernan has published, and I think she's aware of that. I think so, too. Uh, I think that I would add to that list Hide Me Among the Graves, a Tim Powers mm -hmm. novel, <coughs> which I think is is a more serious novel in some ways than his the, – the, the one that's most comparable to is The Stress of Her Regard, although mm -hmm. there are elements of the Anubis Gates in it. But he's in a part of the <coughs> 19th century in the late Victorian era that just has more, more meat for him to get with, and, and I think his – his portrayal of the Rossetti family is much less of a caricature than we got of the romantic poets in The Stress of okay. Her Regard. Yeah. It's a more seriously characterological novel. So those would be my top fantasy um, novels of the year. Uh, I think you're right. I think that the Kiernan thing is uh, fairly astonishing. I think that the Graham Joyce novel, if it comes to be considered as part of a sort of, not set, not series, but the Midlands novels, which started with the facts of life and continued with the limits of enchantment and, and, and now come to this one, there's a kind of uh, <coughs> territory which he's staking out for himself, which I you know, I could only compare to Arthur Machen a little bit, or maybe Rob mm -hmm. Holstock a little bit, uh, but it's certainly um, becoming characteristic Graham Joyce territory. Yeah, I think that's so, true. So I think both Joyce, I think Joyce and Powers... Um, we're doing very well what they've done before. Um, and I think Kernan was really out to take a risk. Well, I mean, I've heard the one comment that I heard about, uh, about the book, uh, about the drowning girl that was potentially, a, that goes against this narrative that we have for it is, um, that it's in the same kind of space as the red tree, her previous book. It's not a completely out of left field, new kind of thing for her to be writing. And there may be some truth to that, but if there is, I think this book is so much better. It is such a remarkable standout book that I think <coughs> it has to be seen seen in that way. And for me, you know, if it, it it's the book that belongs on the award ballots, it's the book that I would hope to see take home some <coughs> some awards next year. And far more importantly than that, that I would hope to see being read in ten or fifteen years. I think so. I think I I, I enjoyed the Red Girl quite a bit, I and mean, it was on the World Fantasy Red tree. ballot. Yeah. Red Tree, rather. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and looking back at that, um, after reading The Drowning Girl, it looks like an approach avoidance. The Red Tree looks like a tentative moving toward the territory. And, and, and you can almost see in The Red Tree where she pulls back from going all the way in. This one, she plunges in 
and it's a raw novel. It's just absolutely, it's, it's, it's something that very few contemporary writers are even trying to do with fantasy. I yeah, think. yeah. So um, it, was, it was desperately impressive. I mean, I do need to go back and read <laughs> Tim Prowers because I have that kicking around. But those books that by themselves would make it an outstanding year, I think. There are other books which are sort of in the, on the periphery that have been reviewed very well that I've not read. People like books like uh, Joe Abercrombie's Red Country, um, yeah. Alan Garner's Boneland, a um, couple others, you know, the Lavi Tidhar and everything. So, you know, all in all, I, I, I think a strong fantasy year, but with, with some real, real standouts. Um, first novel, there was my favorite first novel of the year remains the Willow Wilson book, I'll Lift the Unseen, which I thought was very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also greatly enjoyed Saladin Ahmed's Throne of the Crescent Moon. And, yeah, there were others that were interesting, but those ones that stood out. Yeah, uh, but they're um, – it, it, well, we're looking at, at, at some first novels right now or first books right now. Yeah. The thing that really <coughs> – I'm sorry. The thing that really struck me as being outstanding when I was looking at this, this list again, though, were the collections uh, because I, I can't remember a year that's had that many major collections by major writers – uh, both retrospective and, and new collections. I mean, first of all, you have you have three major writers who have career retrospectives, the most visible of which is obviously Ursula Le Guin. Yep. Um, which is a book that, you know, people who have been reading Le Guin since they were kids um, have been waiting for all that time. Uh, you had a career retrospective from Jonathan Carroll. Yes. Uh, a lot of us didn't even think he wrote that much short fiction. And I then, did. It was my idea. <laughs> okay. Well, I understand you did. <laughs> no, no, but I take your point. Yes, I, I, I very much take your point. That uh, I guess, first of all, the thing I'd say about the short fiction, if we're going to jump over first novels and go to collections, what I'd say about it is this. There's more short fiction being published now than ever before. There are a group of extraordinary writers in amongst that population who right. um, are producing collections. And so it's actually... It would be weird if it wasn't a golden age of collections as well. There would be some disconnect. Now, there's a handful of very strong career retrospectives that you mentioned. Uh, I think the Le Guin does stand out. You're absolutely correct. <coughs> but uh, I think one book that got rolled over from the end of last year was Lucy Sussex's Matilda Told Such Dreadful Lies, which was right. a major right. career retrospective. Um there was Neil Barrett Jr.'s Other Seasons. And the other thing I'd say is that there is a thing right now in small press where they're doing these books. And so there's the chance for us to see just how major they are. So very much um, Other Seasons. The, there, was the, there was The Best of Cage Baker. There was uh, yes. uh, Michael Bishop's The Door Gunner and Other Perilous Flights of Fancy, which is a spectacularly good book. Uh, Bishop's a major, major short story writer. And a new Robert Sheckley book, The Store of Worlds, um, all of which are great. Then you well, have. The not, well, go ahead. Go ahead sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say there were the not quite retrospectives. Yeah. Like when you put Lucius Shepard's Dragon stories together in The Dragon Griol. Well, The Dragon Griol is, is, is a curious book, Gary. <laughs> and, and, and I could bore you at some length on my feelings on The Dragon Griol. Uh-huh. But I, what I'd say about it is I think that. It's a fascinating book. I think it's a very disappointing book in a way because it's not the book that it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. What it is is a publisher putting together a book that everyone will welcome because it's a terrific book, but there's supposed to be a book called The Grand Tour. Lucius has been talking about it for years. Right. Right. And The Grand Tour is the full Dragon Girl cycle. It's all of the stories and bits and pieces all braided together into one large book. And I think he actually managed to sell it at least once back in the 80s or something. <coughs> and this the, one has a new novella in it, right? There's a 55,000-word novel in it. Novel? Okay, fine. Um, and the great the, the thing about the Dragon Girl stuff that stands out, apart from the fact that, I mean, this is a one of the great dragon stories in the history of the field told by someone who despises dragon stories. Just, yes, I mean, right. it was, I mean, came up with the idea where he despised it. I came across this fantastic, I, I could dig it out for you, <coughs> fantastic quote from Lucius <coughs> saying how, you know, it, it just made him sort of filled him with bile, the very thought of dragon stories, and he came up with what was supposed to be the ultimate end of all dragon stories and uh-huh. that, in The Man Who Painted the Dragon Girl. And... He, 
he gets caught by it, you know, because because it's it, it's such a interesting, substantial world, such a a great concept, and he puts it together a series of stories. I mean, the Man Who Painted the Dragon, Raoul, and the Scale Hunter's Beautiful Daughter stand amongst his finest work. Right, absolutely. Uh, so th- they alone would be worth the price of admission to this book. And then there's Liar's House, I think it is, and whatever blood it was. Um, I don't have the book in, uh, in my hand. But a major book. And he also uh, was willing to let Father of Stones appear, which is a story we know Lucius hates. But it's a great book. Right. That said, if you were to look at the, the ones that we would call the original collections, which are recent stories gathered, we've got yeah. a group of really extraordinary books too. I mean, po- possibly the collection of the year is At the Mouth of the River of Bees by Kids Johnson. I would agree. Which gathers together the extraordinary effusion of work she's had over the past five years, where she seems to just pick up every award in the field because she can do almost no wrong. Um, and is a, f- a fabulously welcome book. But it's not mm. the only great collection, original collection of the year. Um, I think Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck which came out later in the year from the Vandermeer's press, Cheeky Frog, mm-hmm. has swept everybody before it. You know, people have fallen in love with it because it is this um, fantastic Finnish, almost magic realist book of stories. I think, I think there's a, 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 an effect that that book has, <coughs> which is essentially that at least I, or at least most of the people I've talked to, have never seen any of these stories before. Yeah. So you have the effect of... Uh, Going back to something like Margot Lanigan's Black Juice, which is a collection of stories, none of which you've seen before, yeah. at least none of them in the States have seen before, and a completely new writer, every story of which is stunning. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, that was a wonderful discovery. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I would say that among, among new discoveries, Karen Tidbeck may be the discovery of the year, certainly in terms of short fiction. She'd be and, close to it. Yeah, and Kids Johnson. Now, at the same time, uh, I was saying that they're the – at the same time, we had new collections from Andy Duncan – Yes, uh, a great book. From Jeffrey Ford. Yes, another uh, great book. From, uh, let me see, uh, I think the first collection from... Uh, Kathy Goonan? Uh, Kathy Goonan. It is, Angels and New Dogs. <laughs> a strong book. Which makes that a little bit of a retrospective. And even the P- Pat McKillop uh, collection, Wonders of the Invisible World, is a rare collection of short stories from her. And, and almost has the effect of a retrospective. Tell you well. what's interesting. The collections list is probably the most diverse list we have. It may be, and it may be that uh, when you start looking at who's doing the most interesting short fiction this, these days, it seems to be very heavily dominated by uh, by women. Probably so, though it's nice to see as well Robert Shearman really making a strong mark with um, uh, Remember Why You Fear Me, which came out from China <laughs> towards the end of the year. And there are, you know, there are other books around. I mean, uh, there's the um, Lisa Hannett, Angela Slatter book, Midnight and Moonshine, which is a very strong book. Uh-huh. Um, Steve Baxter had, had a strong collection this year, as did Bob Silverberg and Karen, and Karen Warren. And also, I, I greatly loved uh, Margaret Lanigan's book, Cracklescape, from 12th Planet. Mm-hmm. Which moved her into the 20th century, as far as most of us can tell. <laughs> and a collection of uh, Liz Hand stories, which I find errantry, which I finally decided has two of the best novellas she's done in it. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is not, but, but the short stories, as a collection of short stories, it probably not be, may not be her strongest collection. No, but I mean, I think but, as a book, but the two novellas are stunning. Yes, oh, they are. Um, the Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon, and oh, oh, near Zenor. Near Zenor, yes. Yes. Off the top of his head, he says. And writers like Nina Kariki Hoffman had a, yes. had a collection of interesting stories this year. The Permeable Board is a very good good collection, and Hoffman seems to be one of our more overlooked short story writers. She writes in the same kind of space as Zena Henderson, mm-hmm. and I think for some reason it's over, easy to overlook how good you can be at that. Um, we've never really had a major career retrospective for Hoffman, and I think it would change people's view of her if we got it, because she's actually a very, very good writer. Yes, and she's had some powerful works, mm. and she, she had her career was interrupted for a while, I believe, due to illness, but still, uh, there's, a, there's a substantial amount of work out there. Yeah. And when you talk about overlooked writers, here's a question a question about a writer who is possibly so well-known that she gets overlooked. And I'm thinking of Nancy Kress, who had both yeah. a novel and a collection of short stories this year. Yes. And there is and there's a sense in which I'm I'm haunted by something Barry Malsberg said on this podcast. We were I think you were asking him 
who among contemporary writers represents this great tradition of 50s and 60s and 70s science fiction? His first response was Nancy Kress. Um, she's always entertaining, always competent, always thoughtful. There's, I don't know if I can think of a failed story by her. <coughs> but yet she doesn't show up. It's a great yeah. mystery of a few writers. In her case, I think it's because there's no great characteristic work. There's no single great work where you go, oh, she's the author. I mean, yes, there's beggars in Spain, right? There's beggars in Spain, yeah. But, but... I don't know that... I don't I don't feel there's a, a great, strong, personal voice. And maybe that's the but fact. You, okay, okay, okay. I don't know if that's fair. I'm sure um, it's not, but, you know. Um, there's, there's a... Maybe... Maybe not so much personal voice, but I think there's an identifiable technique. Is it possible to be te technically so competent that your voice sort of gets subsumed in your technique? I mean, the person that – the short fiction writer that I think Cress is most easily comparable with probably is Silverberg. I was just thinking, and I remember we used to say in my circle that Bob suffered from terminal competence. That he was never well, bad, but he rarely wrote a work that really stood out. The problem with that is I think it doesn't hold up if you go back and read the work. It doesn't go back if you go back and read. I mean, because Born the with the is, Dead and Dying Inside are astounding <laughs> works. So, but there's that feeling. It's like, oh, look, there's another good one. Yeah, I, well, I think the same thing that's happened with Cress. I mean, I think you can go back to Beggars in Spain. You can go back to – there's stories like Out of All Them Bright Stars that are classics. Uh, but by and large, when you see a new collection from Nancy Cress or even a new novel like After the Fall, Before the Fall, During the Fall, your reaction is going to be that. Yes, it's going to be well done. It's going to be competent. It's going to be entertaining. It's going to do everything a science fiction story or novel should do for us. Um, but we've just come to expect that from Nancy, so yeah. we'll just read it and pass on. Yeah. I mean, most most writers out there, most young writers out there, would give their eye teeth to be able to write a Nancy Crest story. Probably so. Uh, simply because of the level of competence that's involved in it. Um, but, uh, again, I think that she's, she's, she's maybe... Um, maybe a holdover from the from the from the golden age of the '60s or '70s, in the sense where where technique is uh, valued more than voice. Maybe so. <coughs> Interestingly, for me, given that it was a golden year for collections and a good year for short fiction, uh, oh. it was a varied year for anthologies. That surprised me too. I was because I was trying to write because I was trying to write my end of the year essay, and I was looking at anthologies. Well. And I, I, this is not, this is awkward on the podcast. It looked to me like Edge of Infinity was about the most interesting. The two anthologies that interested me most yeah. were were your Edge of Infinity and in uh, uh, Ellen Dadlow and Terry Windling's After. Um. Well, thank you. I guess what I'd say is, I mean, I've said this elsewhere, but I think the the clutch of international anthologies we got, mm. Afro SF, The Future is Japanese, Breaking the Bow, um, they're really interesting books three messages of <coughs> warning because they bring different perspectives um i thought that after was a very strong um anthology i picked a couple of stories from it for my best of the year i thought the future is ja you know, japanese was actually had a couple of best of the year quality stories in it um i can't talk to edge of infinity or under my hat but uh gardner's ripoff was good but yeah, I would have expected probably maybe in a good year two or three more major ones and one or two few, fewer ordinary ones. Um, it just seemed to me that there was, uh, I don't know, since you're doing, since you're reading for original anthologies, have the online venues, is, is it still as easy to get original fiction for anthologies as it no. used to be? Or no, it's getting quite hard. Online venues or? Combination of things. Uh, online venues and the fact that increasingly short fiction is being seen as a promotional giveaway. I've got writers who have asked to write stories, and they're going, "Well, I'd love to, but my my, my my novel publisher wants a short wants a short story to put up online as a giveaway and to promote the novel, and I don't have time to write two stories." And that's happened a bunch of times lately. That's very interesting, um, because there seems to be a contradiction between the difficulty of getting good short stories and the fact that we've just raved about how great the story collections have been this year. I know. And I can think. I mean, a Garth, Garth Nix is not a nobody writer at all. He threw an original <laughs> short story in the Australian-only edition of his latest novel, Confusion of Princes. Hmm. Um, and I know that Sean Williams is about to do the same with his new book, uh, Twin Maker. So you know, 
it's hard to get a strong feel for it, for it but yeah, it, it's it, it is a difficult, much more difficult. I mean, I've got a few things going on and they tend to overlap, which makes it harder. Uh, but it, it's not an easy time, and I think with every new market springing up, people are struggling to. You know, it's more pressure because, amongst other things, there's maybe if there are a hundred different writers on the short fiction <laughs> list, everybody mm-hmm. wants stories from those hundred. Well, not only that, but I think that there must be some pressure on the part of writers who have a collection coming out to have one or two original stories to the collection. There are. There is. So, that, uh, for example, there are original stories in Kids Johnson's collection and Kathy Goonan's collection and so forth. And and there's a feeling, I mean, honestly, if you see a, a non-retrospective, non-career retrospective collection, uh, and it doesn't <laughs> have an original story in it, I think you tend to go, oh, I feel a bit ripped off now. It could be. Oh. I know that I go looking for the original story in the book because you're going to give me one, right? Uh, and I remember even years ago when I published um, uh, Going Home Again by Howard Wardrop, he, his feeling was he had to put an original story in every book to give the readers something new. And, yeah, and I can see the point. I was talking to, to um, our friend Ellen Clay just yesterday. Uh-huh. Um, and she was saying she's hoping to start putting together a new book and feels she's got to put a couple of new stories in it. So, you know, interesting times. The other category I touch on before we wind up because we are over our hour is actually we are, we are. Yay. Uh, yay we didn't even talk about the hobbit and we didn't talk about the horrible frame rate and all that stuff but it actually was a spankingly good year for y- ya novels yes it was we should mention that although you read more of them than i do i'll have to admit uh that's true but, but i mean of the ones that are on the list that, that, that are being talked about at the moment the bachigalupi drowned cities was very very good right. uh, uh holly black's black heart was very <laughs> good i enjoyed zuglodon by jim blaylock the diviners by Libba Bray is terrific a Face Like Glass is one of the top ten books of the year by Francis Harding, who is, who is I don't know, the new Joan Aiken. And is one well, of the- I, was, I was going to say that Francis Harding, as I say, there are some people who, if they, if they want to read Paolo Bacigalupi's science fiction, they have to read YA. And Francis Harding seems to have emerged as one of the major fantasy writers of the last decade or so. She is. She, she's the person sitting in the Diana Wynne Jones slash Joan Aiken's seat. Yeah, I think so. So you have to, if you want to read that kind of first-rate fantasy, you have to go yeah. in, into the YA market. And Nalo Hopkinson had a strong book in The Chaos. Mm. Ian McDonald's Be My Enemy was terrific. Um, Dodger um, uh, was a lot of fun. I enjoyed Garth Nix's Confusion of Princes. And there were lots of other books I'm not touching on. I mean, Marianne is, uh, is just reading uh, is going to be reading David Levitan's Every Day pretty shortly. And she said, uh-huh. it's absol- it's, uh, everything I hear about it is terrific. whole bunch. I mean, if we had Gwenda Bond here, who uh, is the Locus's uh, short fiction li- uh, uh, sorry. YA reviewer, she would probably sit there and go, oh, you guys, you missed this one and this one. Very strong year for that. So and we should mention that uh, the Time Magazine, of all places, now it's our friend Lev Grossman, mm-hmm. among the top ten books of the year, books, not science fiction and fantasy books, top ten novels of the year was Catherine Valenti's. Yes. Girl Who Fell Beneath Fairyland. Yes. The Rebel. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, a great year for short fiction, collections, a very, slightly varied year for short fiction itself, I think. Not Weirdly, it was a better year for collections than it was for short fiction, mostly, I think, because it was picking up on several very good short fiction years. Um, yeah. A very good year for YA, a solid year for science fiction, a solid year for fantasy, an okay year for anthologies. Yeah, I think you're right. And with that, my itch is scratched. I don't want to talk about the year in review anymore, because guess what? It's award season again! Yeah, right. Okay, Award- start talking about nominations. The World Fantasy Award ballot is out. You can nominate for it. And I think the Nebula's nominations process started. I nearly sobbed, Gary, when I saw it. I was like, no, not yet. Doesn't it seem like a couple of weeks ago we were saying, yay, the award season is over? I mean, we just did the World Fantasy Awards like a month and a half ago. Yes. <coughs> I know. And I mean, I'm, I've got to get my house done. <coughs> Oh, you poor no. thing. You need to go to bed, and I need. You, know, you sound terrible now. Um, well, I'll, I'll be fine. This is. I'm glad I got through this. Good. But it's. it's well, it's, I was sick for the last podcast, and you were sick for this one, so so it balances out, okay. I guess. We'll we'll get through. I just hope I didn't mess up the sound on your end. Oh, um, look, I may or may not be able to cut out a few coughs and splutters, but it's okay. Everyone will understand. Okay. I'll I'll refer to this one as the cough cast. Myth the damn Mayans. They did it to me. Bastard. Actually, it's Maya. They, they scaled down the apocalypse and decided it was me. And actually, let's yeah. be fair to the Maya, shall we? 
Poor old Maya. All they did was they had their calendar and everybody came along and chose to interpret it. Leave them alone. It's not the Maya. There's still like seven or eight million Maya around. Okay. I should clarify this also because I've had to do this with my family. I've had to do it with students. There never was a Mayan apocalypse anywhere in the Mayan calendar. Yeah. But um, I need to blame somebody for my cold, don't I? Well, you wouldn't want to be responsible for yourself. No, Gary, that would be terrible. No, I wouldn't want to be responsible for myself. So I guess we'll we'll be back in a week in a new year. We'll do another podcast. It'll be number 129 or 30 or something, I guess. Because we've done a lot of these, Gary. Is it time to stop? Well, what, Have we done what enough? What year did we start? Did we start this in 20... 29, I think. 2009? 20, 29 or 10. 10 2010. Okay. So we'll be going into our third consecutive year of podcasting. We will. All right. Uh, I mean, I noticed we we didn't. There was no Boxing Day podcast this year. There won't be a New Year's podcast, I don't think. Probably not. Uh, but we we will get. You know, episode one one thirty will be will be out next week. The one twenty nine, which is this one, will be out tomorrow probably on the twenty on the thirtieth of December. Uh, and to answer your question, Gary, when was it? The eighth of May two thousand ten was our first podcast. So we're going. We're two and a half years, let's say. Yeah. So it's been, been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. That was enough. Let's stop doing it now. Let, let, let's not okay, wreck our... We'll talk next week. After, okay. All right. Just to make sure the, the, the Mayan apocalypse that never existed doesn't claim our podcast. Goodbye for now. <laughs>